Lord, we're grateful for this privilege again to study your inerrant word. Our hearts are easily swayed by the influences of the world, and we ask that you just guard our hearts from those things, things that lure us, those things that seem so so joyful, but yet only cause misery. Lord, we guard our hearts from little compromises in our lives that would ruin our life. And I pray that you can be with us now as we study through this portion of scripture, that you will not allow us to see the Israelites as someone that is, as a group of people that are so different and foreign to us. But in reality, the things that they do are things that we are able to do as well. Give us humility. Allow us to look at your word as a mirror to our own soul. Teach us the lessons that you want us to learn and, and cause us to be more like your son. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen. When it comes to sin, the world defines it differently. If you look at the headlines in the news, if you watch the television or YouTube or social media, you'll notice that the word sin or things that the Bible will describe as sin is often redefined. And the reason why they're redefined is because it allows them to kind of sear their own conscience. It allows them to kind of distance themselves from the guilt that comes with sin so they don't have to deal with the reality that the, that the Lord of all heaven and earth has written the law in their own hearts. Man calls it an accident. God calls it an abomination. Man calls it a blunder. God calls it blindness. Man calls it a comfort. God calls it catastrophe. Man calls it an error. God calls it enmity. Man calls it freedom. God calls it fatality. Man calls it fun. God calls it folly. Man calls it independence. God calls it iniquity. Man calls it liberty. God calls it lawlessness. Man calls it mistake. God calls it madness. Man calls it opportunity. God calls it obstruction. Man calls it satisfaction. God calls it sin. Man calls it a choice, and God calls it compromise. Sin, no matter how much you try to mask it or change its definition, does not change in the eyes of God. Sin is always against God and God alone. And all sin, the major sins in our life, begin with these little compromises in our life. This little review of what we've learned so far. We've learned that these group of Israelites have lost one of their leaders. He's lost Joshua, and they went into the promised land, and they were able to succeed for a little while. They were able to take over some things, but even as they were able to overcome some of these nations, they did it in a way that is that's peppered with compromise. They were unable to do all that God has expected of them because they feared man or the devices of man more than they do the Lord. And you'll notice that as we continue going on that, that the, the Israelites, it just becomes worse and worse for them. Last week I mentioned that it's, a, it's not really a cycle, although things seem like a pattern, but it's more like a tailspin. Like really the beginning of Judges is the high point and it's all downhill from here. And I talked about how there are eight ways in which you can ruin your life, eight type of compromises that you can make in your life that can wreck everything that you've done in your life, whether it's for ministry, whether it's for your career, whether it's for your family. If you continue to allow compromise in your life, you will ruin it. And just a reminder of what we've gone through so far, we talked about how compromise is subtle, that it comes out of nowhere, and it's really nowhere because you don't guard your own heart. Because you haven't thought about what are the things that are in the world that are influencing me that's causing me to be like the world. We talk about how compromise causes decline and that you're unable to do the things of the Lord because you compromised. 
you fail to trust who he is, so the things in your life becomes worse and worse. We talk about how compromise causes unfaithfulness. And by unfaithfulness, it means that you don't trust the Lord anymore. You may be at one point thinking, oh, I trust the Lord fully, but when you allow these little compromises to go into your heart, eventually you stop trusting in God. And the fourth point we talked about last week was that compromise leads to moral failure, that you and your compromise will eventually get to the point where you live a life that is contrary to Scripture. And we're going to go through four more this evening. Four more ways in which if you do not guard your own heart from compromises, that they will ruin your life. So four more realities of compromise is this. So if you were to follow from last week, this is the fifth point. That compromise calluses the heart. Look at the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 2. Now the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgag to Bochim. Now, this is a seemingly random episode here where this angel of the Lord appeared. Uh, and, and we understand that we, if you study the totality of Scripture, that the, every time you see this very angel of the Lord is actually God taking a physical form. It's the pre-incarnate Christ. We call this theophany. Uh, we know that it's God because in, later on, those, uh, when, when Samson is around, even before, earlier in the book, in the, in, in the Old Testament, we see that whenever, whenever this angel of the Lord appears, people begin to worship him. And the angel of the Lord does not say, don't worship me. In fact, in the book of Revelation, we'll see these angels, and we see John, uh, the apostle John, bowing down to the angel and begin to worship. The angel tells him no. But what's unique about the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is that it is God becoming a man for just uh, specific times and instances. And usually when the angel of the Lord shows up, it's to, to relay a message to the people of Israel. The angel of the Lord appears 58 times in the Old Testament. And the last time we saw this, if you read through the entire Bible, is in Judges chapter 5, verse 14. You'll notice that the angel came up from Gilgag. Uh, and it's weird to us, because why is that significant? You have to understand that Gilgag was a place where Israel first camped after they crossed the Jordan. This is a place of remembrance that if you remember in the beginning of Joshua, they crossed over to the Jordan and they made these little statues, these little stones to to remind them of what God has done for them. This is a major place of worship. And this is supposed to be a place where they remember what God has done for them in Egypt and in the wilderness. The coming of the angel Lord in this area is to remind the Israelites of, of his own faithfulness to the Israelites. You notice this place, Bochim, it's called Land of the Tears, or Place of Weepers, or the Ray Fung translation, the Land of Crybabies. You'll notice that in, verse, in the middle of verse 1, that the angel of the Lord said, I brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers, and I said, I will never break my covenant with you. So as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down the altars, but you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? God reminds them of all that he has done and also reminds them of the promises that he has made with their ancestors and with them as well. And you notice at the end of verse 2, there's this phrase that should sound familiar to you. And that phrase is, what is this you have done? And it sounds familiar because the very first time these words appear in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 4. Right after when Adam and Eve ate from the fruits, God asked them, what is it that you have done? And later on, you'll, you'll see, actually Genesis chapter 4 is Cain and Abel. You'll notice that, in, that after Abel is killed, God asked Cain the same question. What is this you have done? Whenever this phrase shows up in the Bible, it is because God's people have done something wrong and God is confronting them. There's some sort of breach in their covenant relationship with him. God told them to keep their relationship with him and the people chose to to go after other gods. Look at verse 3. Therefore I said, I will not drive them out before you but they will become as thorns in your sides and their gods will be a snare to you. The result of them breaking the covenant and the promises of God is that they would be enslaved by these foreign nations. 
The Canaanite gods will be a snare to them, and that they will that the God that they worship will end up hurting them. These false gods that they go to will become a burden to the Israelites. And the Israelites did not obey God, and it costed them. These four nations and their gods will have their way with the Israelites. This is how all forms of idolatry works. It makes you a slave to the things that you long for. It drains you. It exhausts you. If you are a person who loves money, the Bible is clear that you will never be satisfied with money. You may have these moments in your life, in your career, where you think, oh, I have this really nice paycheck and all is good. But if you're discontent with what God has provided for you and you crave for more and more, you just seek after these things and it will, it will be exhausting to you. And even in Ecclesiastes, it tells that those who have the most money are the ones who, who can't sleep at night because they're always worried about those who want to take their money away. If you are obsessed with sexual sin, the Proverbs tells you that it will ruin your life. It will drain, it will suck the life out of you. If you live like this, if you live for sin, you will suffer and lose everything else in your life. Look at verse 4. When the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. So they named that place Bochim, and, and there they sacrificed to the Lord. The result of this rebuke from God is that it broke them, and they began to weep. This, they actually de- designate this entire land as like, okay, this is the place where we all cry when the Lord rebuked us for our sin. But one of the things you will notice is that even though they were weeping, you know that the end of the book, that they're weeping here, is vain. Their brokenness over sin is not genuine. This entire nation wept and cried. And on the surface, they seem broken over their sin. It looks like they're repentant. They were even so broken that they named the place after. It means that every time they walk by, there'll be a sign to say Bochim, and they'll remember, oh, that's the place where the angel of the Lord rebuked us. That we know, because we have the totality of Scripture, even chapter 1 of Judges, that their weeping is not genuine. We understand that even in the biblical characters that there is a, such a thing as a false repentance. Saul was confronted for his sin, but he was broken by it, but he did not repent. David was confronted by his sin, and he was broken, and he genuinely repented. We know that Peter was someone who, 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 who sinned against the Lord. He denied Jesus three times, and he repented. And Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus, was broken over his sin as well, but he did not have a genuine repentance. Everyone can, on the surface, break down and cry over their sin, it may not be truly repentance. It's the question you should ask yourself then. How do I know that when I'm broken over my sin, that it's a true, genuine brokenness over sin? How do I know that my heart is not callous to sin? Well, the answer is simple. is that you will turn from those sins, that there will be a difference in your life, that there will be fruit. You may be confronted with sin, but you don't toy with it. You don't say, oh, I'm, I'm, I feel bad about this and go back into your sin. You get confronted and you look at your life and you ask God to give you grace to cut those sin out of your life. Falling into sin and acknowledge sin isn't enough. And the sad reality of sin is that the more you consume it, the more callous you become to it. Your cries are just constructs to conceal your callousness and God knows your heart. If you allow sin to reign in your life, eventually you will attempt to hide your sin. And when you can't hide it anymore, you will attempt to justify it. And after you justify your sin in your life, you will eventually want to promote it to other people in your life. This is the progression of sin. Sin, if left unchecked, will callous your heart. Compromise causes the heart to calcify. Just because a person is broken does not mean they're going to break the bondage of the sin in their own life. This is what 2 Corinthians 7.11 talks about how there are a worldly type of repentance, a false repentance, and there's also a genuine repentance. Some people only cry out and grieve because they're caught. They're they're hiding their sin, and someone found their sin out, and the only reason why they're weeping is just because they're found out. Some other people weep and grieve because it's only popular to do so. 
You only weep because everyone else is weeping. Oh, I don't want to do that sin, because, not because you believe it's a sin, because everyone else does not do that. Some only grieve because maybe it is genuine. But no matter the reason, there needs to be a change in your life. True repentance acknowledges our sin against God, and we turn from our rebellion, and we walk in obedience. If you continue to dabble into sin by compromise, you will eventually have a callous heart. When I talk about callousness, I mean really you begin to feel nothing about that sin. If you continue to fall into sin, the more you feed your sin, the more you allow it to grow, your heart will begin to feel nothing. These Jews wept and named a place after their cries, but it's evident in their action, not long after this event, that they'll give their heart and love another. Sin corrodes the conscience, and the callousness of sin will ruin your life. Not only is compromise subtle, or that it causes decline, or causes unfaithfulness, or leads to moral failure, or it callouses the heart, but compromise causes forgetfulness. Look at verse 6. And when Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went each of his went each to his inheritance to possess the land. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of El- and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of one hundred and ten. They buried him in the territory of the inheritance in Timnah Herez, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. That generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there rose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Verse 6 begins this kind of chronologically at the end of the book of Joshua. It's intended to show that life will be more difficult in the promised land than they expected. This is a place of pain instead of paradise. This is the setup for the rest of the book. They will be unable to complete the mission that God has set before them because of their own sin. God is also showing his refusal to carry out the mission of fulfilling any more of his promise of blessing, instead his promise of cursing. You notice in verse 7 that the people begin to serve the Lord. This is a reference back to time when the Israelites were actually faithful, or at least on the surface it seemed that they were faithful. Not only did the regular people, but also the elders that lived past Joshua. There was a multitude of people that witnessed and spoke of the miracles that God has done for them. And this is a transitional verse to show that this generation may have heard of God's word and all that he's done, but they did not have an experiential knowledge of what God has done for them. Verse 89, Joshua died and people buried him in a place where God has promised Joshua. Oftentimes when we talk about this phrase, borrowed conviction, what we mean by that is that you are taught something about the Bible that you don't fully believe. You may be able to parrot what other people say about a specific passage or, or the way that you should live out your life or the things about Scripture, but it's not truly your own. This is what the Israelites' heart was really at. They were taught, and on the surface they did, right, they did all the right things, but their convictions are not their own. And as Christians... All that we have is what is given to us. Like the Israelites, they had the Torah. They had the word of God. And we too have the scriptures. We have the totality of God's word passed down and taught to us. And this is written for us to know him. This is what we talk about in 2 Peter in the beginning where it said that this, the, the word of God is, is to teach us a life of godliness. These things that you read and learn must and the things that you know from Scripture, you must hold it and make it your own. You need to understand it clearly and to take time to really study what God's Word has to say. And these convictions has to be your own. You can't, be, you, can't, you can't hold the conviction because your pastors hold it or your Sunday school teacher or your flock leader or your family or friends. It must be something that you own. If your faith is propped up by another, you will stumble when the prop is away. If you aren't going to make God's word your own and cherish God's word yourself, you will eventually forget all of God's words. You notice in verse 10 that there's this, this, is, this unfortunate trans- transitional verse that led to the Israelites' downfall. 
They did not know God nor his work. They were taught it, but it went from one ear and out the other. Their sin led them to forget all that God has done for them. And they traded all that God has done in the past for idols. They knew God the way that we know God, both in terms of the natural revelation by looking at nature and through divine revelation by looking at scripture. They knew the promise of God and what his expectations were to be distinct in the world. But they chose not to do it because they loved idols. They were lured away by the things of the world. What about you? What are the idols or lifestyles or conduct in your life that seems like the world? Sin and compromise will cause you to forget all that God has taught you. Some of you guys grew up in the church. You went through those Awana classes. You got those little badges for all the memory verses. But you, if you continue to fall into sin, you'll find that your mind will go blank to the word of God. You can, you can journal all the sermons that you hear or, or write down all their devos in your little notebook, but when you continue to fall into sin, those words will mean nothing to you. You can hear the greatest sermon, the most inspiring sermon, but yet if you fall into sin, those words will vanish from your mind. Whenever you allow compromise to come into your life, you will find that scripture will progressively become less and less impactful in your life. Compromise will cause you to forget the promises as well as the cursings of God. Both the warnings and wisdom of God will slowly become a faint memory of the past. The more you allow sin to creep into your life, the more you'll forget the things of the Lord. The last few weeks, there's been these strange phenomena where it just seems to be raining in this month of May. And what happens, at least in where I live, when there's rain, there are a swarm of ants that decide to come into my house. And I don't think that they're in my house for shelter. They're not there saying, hey, take us in. We're refugees. Take us. We will serve you. No, they're not like that. They're here. They, 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 their home is destroyed, so they, go, they decide to go to my home. And not only that, they decide to eat my food. To a point where even my daughter was like, saw Anne, and she like, picked one out and gave it to Kelly. And I was like, oh, no. And I, and, I, and I wonder, like, oh, if these ants, like, combine their strength, were they able to lift my daughter out of the house, make, them, make her their new queen? But no, when we see these ants, we have to kill these ants. If we let them roam around our house, inevitably they're going to eat everything that we have. They'll eat Ruby's food, they'll eat Kelly's food, and more importantly, they'll eat my food. And I, so we have to make this effort. We have to put traps everywhere. We have to just try to like wipe down all the counters, vacuum all the time, just so the ants will not thrive. If the fruits of, was, for example, your sanctification, it's like the food in your house was sanctification and the fruit of salvation, and the ants was sin, you must do all that you can to fight to keep it. You must be willing and continually kill, to kill sin if you want to preserve your sanctification, sanctification, just like those horrible little ants that are eating all my food and to keep them away, so it is with your own sanctification relative to sin. Sin will try to creep into your life and try to eat everything away, and you must be diligent in protecting your sanctification. You must continue to ask God for grace to preserve the fruit of the Spirit that's in your life. God, will prom- God promises a way to escape from sin, so you need to ask him for that. You need to Bank on the promises of Scripture. But if you let sin continually run your life, eventually you'll forget these promises that God has made. Sin will always keep making promises of pleasure in this life, but it will never be fulfilled. And if you continue to live in sin, it will make you forget the true promises of God's Word. And you'll just keep looking and seeking, and you'll never find freedom or even lasting pleasure Sin is stupid, and it will make you stupid. Not only is sin subtle, it causes decline or causes unfaithfulness or leads to moral decline or calluses heart or causes forgetfulness, but next, compromises cause, causes pain. Our seventh point, compromises causes pain. Look at verse 11. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their father, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods 
of the people who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. The Israelites began to turn and serve Baal and all of the other gods in the land. The repentance earlier, that Bochim, that land where they're of tears, is absolutely nothing. It is beginning to show now. Now that the generation before them has passed, the conviction that was once there is no longer there anymore. It's all just thrown out the window. Israel did what was evil in the sight of God. Baal was an, is, is, was an evil pagan god. He, he defied all that God has established. It's a religion that is driven by sexual acts in order to summon Baal. Ultimately, what was evil is not just gross acts in and of itself, but a violation of the covenant with God. They broke their covenant by committing sexual acts with all of these Baal worshipers, and it's, and it's a crisis for them. It causes a pain in their life. They forgot God and all that he has done. Going back to this sin that offends them, it, 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 and going back to sin offends God because God delivered us and them from sin. You understand that with the Israelites, they cried out for God for deliverance, and God did. And even in our life, when we remember what God has done for us, what God, Christ has done on the cross, it should cause us not to want to go back to the sin that, we, that costed the life of our Savior. Imagine if you were a firefighter. You did all that you can to rescue the person in this building. You see this burning building. You're calculating, okay, the chances of both of us surviving is very slim, but I'm willing to risk my life to go in to save this individual. You take your little axe. You go in. You bust the, th- the door open. You walk through, and you're screaming and crying out, hey, are you here? Where are you? Let me look for you. And you hear the scream. It goes faint in this area and it's louder in the area, so you walk towards that direction. You're, you're, every second counts, and you see that the place is burning down sw- quickly, so you... You, you plead, hey, where are you? Where are you? And then they say, I'm here, I'm here. Then you find them. You find them, you wrap them up, and you get out of the burning building, and then everything seems safe. But instead of that person thank you, he decides to go back into the burning building. How would you feel if you were that firefighter? In a greater sense, God rescued us. God rescued the Israelites from the pagan gods of Egypt just for, for them to go back to worship a pagan gods of Canaan. It offends God greatly that his people would turn so quickly. So it is with us when we compromise. We're essentially saying that what Christ has done on the cross for us is meaningless. And it offends God greatly. Israel's, Israel chose to cause God pain in their idolatry and continue to be under the pains due to their idolatry. They deliberately chose to go back to pagan worship and the pagan idols of the time, instead of giving them peace, caused them a tremendous amount of pain. Look at verse 13. So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Asheroth. This word serve here denotes worship and devotion. This is, this is the same word that was used in verse 7 when they said the people served the Lord. Israel went from worshiping and devoting to Yahweh to now worshiping and devoting their life to Baal. Now I want you to look at verse 11 and 13. I really, like, look at your Bible, because this next phrase, the next thing I'm about to show you will not make sense if you're just looking at me. So look at your Bible. In Hebrew, we call this thing a chiastic uh, structure, meaning that it's almost like a hamburger. You know when, you, when people say, like, uh, oh, give me a chicken sandwich, there's, like, the bun and then a bun and a chicken in the middle? You know that the most important thing about chicken sandwich is not the buns, it's the chicken, Right? or if you go, like a cheeseburger or whatever, it's the middle part that matters. That's what chiastic structure is. is the, the first and the last are, are, import, are, are similar, and it goes into the middle. And the middle point, the middle section, is the most important part of what they're trying to convey. And, this is what, and we see this here in verse 11 and 13. Notice that in the beginning of, or the end of verse 11, you see this phrase, uh, they served Baal. If you look at the end of verse 13, at 13b, you see that they serve Baal. And look at the beginning of verse 12. They said it, they forsook God. And the, in the beginning of verse 13, so they forsook the Lord. So that means if these were the buns, so what is the middle part? And it's this middle part of verse 12 that reads, The God of their fathers who have brought them out of the land of Egypt and, and followed 
other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. They forgot who God is, and it caused God to become angry at them. And this, all of this is intended for us to look at verse 14. Because of what they have done, look at verse 14. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he gave them into the hands of the plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the, land, into the hands of the enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before the enemies. This, notice this, this reaction to their sin is that God gave them to the hands of the plunderers who plundered them. These other nations not only worship other God, but they plundered the Israelites. They're like raiders or pirates. They went in, they took whatever they wanted. Israel worshipped the gods, but they, did not, they were not treated as if they were the people of these other gods. God gave them up to the, these pagan gods, and they turned on them. Verse 15, whenever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil as the Lord has spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them so that they were severely distressed. God fulfills his covenant promise, but it is in the negative. You remember in the Old Testament, in the Deuter- in Deuteronomy, God said that if you are faithful to me, I will bless you. But if you turn from me, if you're unfaithful to me, I will curse you the way that I curse the Egyptians. And this is what's going on right now. They are experiencing God's wrath. They're experiencing God's disciplining hand. This verse reveals the Israelite experience of pain and suffering because they prostituted themselves to foreign gods. They forsook Yahweh and they forfeited their covenant, which fueled God's fiery anger towards them. This is the grim reality is that although these four nations seem like enemies to them, the real enemy at this point in time is God himself. God gave them over to their sins, and God is the only one that could have stopped to it. The beginning of all idol worship always begins with pleasure, and yet it always ends in pain. When you think about your own walk, you must remember this reality that sin is pleasurable at the moment, but it will lead you to tremendous amount of pain. If you compromise, sin will hurt you. Sin will, will, will hurt you enough, and it will wreck every part of your life. The reason why, this is, the reason why that is because sin is, is a violation of what God actually wants for you. In other words, your body is not designed for sin. Your body is designed to serve and worship the Lord. Sin corrupted the body and it destroys it, but the original design of all humanity is that they serve God, and their body is not compatible with sin. That's what 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 13 tells us, that all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and stomach is for food, but God will do away with them both, yet the body is not for immorality. Before the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. If you, if you commit your body to sin, there will be pain. You know, a lot of things that we think about, the sins that we commit, oftentimes some of these things are actually good things that become distorted. We think about gluttony. Gluttony is an idolatry of food. Food is good. Food is meant for the stomach. Food gives you energy. It sustains you. That's good. It's a blessing from the Lord. But overindulgence of it, thinking that you could find pleasure in food, that's gluttony. And it will damage you if you continue eating and eating and eating. Laziness, for example, is an idolatry of rest. Rest is good. You need rest. God rested after he created everything, and you need rest. God established the Sabbath for that reason. But yet, if, if rest is all you want in your life, you'll become lazy. And the Bible speaks about laziness. If you read the book of Proverbs, it seems that the book of Proverbs has this antagonistic attitude towards those that are lazy. Promiscuity is an idolatry of pleasure. Sex is designed and is good in the confines of marriage. But when you commit yourself to sexual sin, you, you, you devalue God's intended purpose for sex, eventually you become 
seeking for pleasure, but it'll never get to its intent. You'll never be able to feel the pleasure that God has intended for you. All sin is idle of something that God prohibits or a twisting of something that God meant for good. And when you choose sin, you choose to damage your relationship with God, and that is far worse than any pleasures of this, this life. We see this when David speaks in about, the, uh, about his own sin in Psalm 51. He said that his sin is ever before the Lord, and he realizes that his sin caused him a tremendous amount of grief. What areas in your life do you see that is slowly chipping away at your walk with Jesus? Bottom, bottom line is this. When you toy with sin, it may be fun at first, but sin will toy with you, and when it does, it is never fun. Fun Life is filled with pain and sorrow when you give into a life of sin. You mentioned how sin or compromise is subtle, that causes decline, causes unfaithfulness, leads to moral decline, calluses the heart, it causes forgetfulness, causes pain. But lastly, compromise causes apostasy. Our eighth and final point compromise causes apostasy. Verse 16, then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges. The Lord, in his mercy, raised up these judges to save them, and due to the pain that it caused them by their disobedience, they cry out and the Lord saves them. But yet, even though the, Lord, the judges would rescue them, they failed to listen to the Lord. Verse 17, that it said, For they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers. If the people will not listen to God, they will not listen to the messengers of God. This phrase, did not listen, it's essentially a seemingly short summary of what the entire book is about. It explains that the judges aren't, aren't, aren't just to rescue them, but they're also teachers. The judges are supposed to inform them of why God needed to save them, why they were even in their sin to begin, why they're in so much pain. Yet the Israelites took the deliverance physically, but ignored all of the spiritual components, all the spiritual rescue. They failed to see all of that. God can actually do the same thing. He can save you physically, and yet your heart can still not be towards him. You can ask God to, to God can answer your prayer, yet you still don't believe in him. God, in his grace, blesses both the, the believers and also the wicked. The Israelites quickly turned from obeying God and did not live up to their father's faithfulness. They severed their covenant relationship with God and stuck themselves to these false gods. These pagan gods allured them with both pleasure and promise, and they wanted, to, they, they wanted these type of blessings that the, the only the real God can provide, but they went to the wrong place. They went to the wrong God. When you look at some of our liberal people in the world and some of the arguments and things that they want in the world, objectively speaking, these things are actually good. Who doesn't want world peace? Who doesn't want the end of poverty? Who doesn't want the climate to be good, etc., etc.? You actually realize when you study the scriptures that these are actually promises of God. These are things that God will provide in the future when Christ returns. These are good desires, and there are future promises of God. But the difference between what the Bible is saying and what the liberals are saying is that when they talk about it, they want all of those blessings from God without God himself. People may want the blessings of God without worshiping the God of all blessings. Look at verse 18. When the Lord raised up the judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the, land, from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of, of those who oppressed and afflicted them. But it came about when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. 
God saved them, and after uh, God saved them after their sin hurt them, and then again they needed relief. And the only reason why he did that is because God was moved to pity. God, I think sometimes when we look at the Old Testament God, we think of him as this fiery, angry God, but we neglect to look at these passages that he's moved to pity. If you are someone that understands God's emotions, you'll see how great the love our God has for us. You know, if you ask your parents, like, how far they went to take care of you, despite your rebellion, you, you may get a sliver of understanding what God is like to you. Your parents still loved you no matter how rebellious you were. Your parents still provided for you no matter how, uh, how difficult you made their life. And it's because they loved you. They saw your stupidity and they had pity for you. And at an infinite scale, that's how God is to the Israelites and even to us today. Our God loves us. He sees our sin. He sees our stupidity. He's moved to pity to care for us. This is this merciful God. You'll notice that they, they, they're crying out. There's this groaning. It's, it's supposed to make you think back to Exodus chapter 2 when the Israelites were in Egypt and they were being enslaved by the Egyptians and they groaned and they cried out the Lord to rescue them. But yet, no matter how many times God moved to pity and saved them, they went back into their sin. And after these judges died, they went back and to their old ways. Their love for these false idols has grown and increased. I remember when I was in high school, uh, one of my friends in our small group called me randomly in the middle of the night in distress. He was horrified, and I could hear, he called me and the other guys in the small group, he was like, his voice was trembling, and he was tears, and I could tell something was wrong, and then he, he couldn't exactly tell me exactly what it was the first several minutes. Eventually, he was able to say, can you guys pray for me? I said, yeah, of course we'll pray for you. He's like, can you pray that my girlfriend is not pregnant? And that threw me off. I was like, wait, 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 back up. What? It's only in this conversation that I realized that even though we were in the same small group together, even though we were praying together, studying the Bible together, that he was living this double life. And then I didn't even know how, like, should I pray for this? Because it's like, you're living in sin, and are you going to repent? Are you going to turn? What is it? Are you going to go back to your own sin even after the Lord maybe grants you mercy in this sense? And eventually, yeah, she wasn't pregnant, but they just continue living their sin. And progressively, I noticed that in his life, he just stopped caring. It became once praying for, for purity to praying that she's not pregnant to just pray that, like, oh, I just have wisdom to this. Oh, I don't need prayer anymore. And this is the reality of all sin, that it grows and grows to the point where you don't care about the things of the Lord. What about you? What consequences of sin that God has both in his mercy and kindness delivered you from that you rush back into? What are the sins that God has protected you from, the consequences of those sins that God has protected you from, that you know it's sin, but after God has protected you, you still decide to go back into it? You think to yourself, well, it wasn't bad last time. I'm sure it won't be bad the next time. Understand that this is foolish thinking. If you're not mindful of what God has done for you, in the past, you will forget him altogether. Verse 20. So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he said, because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their father, and has not listened to my voice. God became angry at them. And notice that he said, this nation. This is a recurring word, and it's often used to talk about the Israelites when they choose not to follow God's command. It's a word that speaks of separation. It's, it's not my nation or my people, but this people. Some of you guys have nicknames. You guys call each other nicknames. And the reason why you have nicknames is because it's, it's, it speaks of this unique relationship that you guys have with one another. There's like, it's a bond, this closeness that you have. But when you, when you start becoming, when you, when you notice that they stop calling you by your nickname and your full name, you notice that there's a distance. There's something weird. You're used to, call, you're used to calling themselves a certain name, and then they, you, they, they start calling you a different name. You'll say, hey, what, what's going on? It shows that there's some sort of distance. Something has changed. God calls them this people because these people are not distinct the way that he is distinct. 
but they began to look common and like the world. Israel are not his people anymore, but this people. Look at verse 21. I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nation which Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in it as their fathers did or not. So the Lord allowed those nations to remain, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the, into the hand of Joshua. In light of their sin, God will no longer drive these four nations out because Israel failed to be faithful. God does not sweep the other nations away, but he allows them to suffer. He allows the Israelites to suffer for their sin. This is to summarize that God will not have their prom- well, God will not give them into the promise land because of their own unfaithfulness. Until these people get their act together, they will not inherit God's promise. There are some people in this generation that not only saw God's promise, but they but because of their broken covenant with the Lord, they also died breaking that covenant. What's worse is that their their present sin brought them death both physically and spiritually. If you continue in your sin, not only will you ruin your life here on earth, but you will ruin your next life. If God will fulfill all of his promise and word in this life, he will fulfill them in the next life as well. Some of these Israelites went from calling themselves followers of Yahweh's to followers of other God and then just being dead altogether. Their compromise grew to a point where it was so great that it led them to hell. Compromise will lead your heart to apostasy. If you fail to fight sin in your life and continue to let your sin run rampant in your life, you will leave the faith. Rather, you will show to the world that you were never a believer to begin with. Faith is evidenced by obedience. If there is no obedience, that there is no faith. If you want to ruin your life, have no desire for heaven in the, in the next life, but the false perception of heaven in this life through sinful pleasures. Don't strive after, the, after, don't strive after Christ-likeness or being with Christ in the next life, and, and you will get that in the next as well. You'll be completely separated from God. The greatest danger of comp- compromise is total separation from God. You need to test yourself in every aspect of your life. Test yourself to see if you are truly in the faith. What is your relationship with sin? Well, your relationship with sin will reveal how your relationship is like with God. How you handle sin shows, uh, shows yourself and to everyone else how valuable Jesus is to you. And if Christ is not valuable, you will have a high view of sin. And the inverse is also true. If you have a high view of Christ, if you love Jesus fully, if you see him as the most desirable thing in your life, if, he is, if he's the center of all your affections, then sin will be abhorrent to you. But if you love sin, eventually you will deny Christ for the fleeting pleasures of sin. Eventually you'll deny Jesus, you'll deny all the things that the Bible teaches, just so you could pursue pleasure in this life that will lead to damnation in the next life. That's the danger of compromise. It will lead to apostasy. Compromise is subtle, causes decline, causes unfaithfulness, leads to moral decline, calluses the heart, causes forgetfulness, causes pain, and lastly, causes apostasy. Be on guard from sin. Test yourself and turn away from every small sin in your life. If you don't turn from sin now, you eventually turn on God altogether. God may afflict you for your sin to get your attention, and you need to pay attention to those moments and turn from it before it's too late. And this is exactly what the Pharisees were like. They did all the spiritual things, but yet when they died, the Lord told them, depart from me for I never knew you. And what pity and shame it is if you spend all your life in the church doing all the church things, but in your, in the, and when you're outside the church, you live a life that is essentially a hypocrite. Eventually, it will be revealed. My hope as a pastor is that none of us 
fall into the allurement of compromise, that we don't make compromises in our life so that we could be distinct, so that when the world looks at it, they can see there's something unique about us, just like what the Israelites were supposed to be. May we be faithful in our life so that we can show the world how great our God is. May we fight sin, cut those compromises out of our life so that God will be made known to our friends, to our family, to our neighbors, and to whoever the Lord placed in our way. But if you fall into sin, if you continue to live life of compromise, you will be like the world. And if you're, if you're similar to the world outwardly, I'm pretty sure you're, you're like the world inwardly as well. Check your hearts. Look to scripture. Evaluate your hearts and turn from the little compromises in your life. Let us pray. Lord, we're thankful for this opportunity. And we're convicted by your word knowing that it is so true about what we are that we're so easily drawn to sin. But Lord, may you become more desirable for us daily. Make yourself known in our hearts and our mind. And Lord, we're thankful for the cross. We're thankful that your son has come down into the world to live the perfect life that all of us fail to do, all the, the things that we fail to live. And yet you died on the cross and rose again three days later, giving us your righteousness, the righteousness that we can never achieve on our own. And Lord, all of us have our moments where we, we fall into compromises. Lord, may you convict us in those moments to turn from them. Make our, make our minds and our hearts soft to your word. May we be sensitive to your word so that we can walk faithfully. Lord, we don't want to be a people that, that are, have our hearts turned from you. Please be with us daily. Remind us of your word. Allow us to meditate on your word so that we can live in a way, in a manner that's worthy of your name, Lord. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.